a really good friend of mine who had her child, you know, with a surrogate and a donor egg. And she said to me, how can you consider adoption? I mean, you don't know what you're going to get. And I was like, well, you don't know what you're going to get with any. Here's the thing. Any child is like a seed and you plant that seed in the ground and you give it light and water and air and you hope that it grows into something beautiful and amazing and formidable. And some seeds don't grow the way you expect them to grow, but there's no, there's no guarantee no matter how you, you know what I mean? So it's like, as a parent, like you want to open your heart to a child that needs love. And that's what I feel like we did. We opened our hearts to children that needed love. I couldn't imagine our family any other way. Like, and I, I mean, I feel like we, we are parents, the kids we were meant to be the parents of. We're Jason and Yvonne Lee, wife, husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators, explorers of identity. You're listening to Lager Lane Spirits, a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium, a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails. Join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history. You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on lageralanespirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. Welcome to episode three, part two of Lagrelane Spirits. This episode is a three-part series where we deep dive into three very different adoption stories to explore the topic of biological identity and origin. Today, we bring you a very special part two. In part one of episode three, we interviewed Hank and Sue Ann Fortner, the founders of a wonderful organization called Adopt Together. This three-part series is about exploring origin stories and adoption through four very different stories, including that of my husband, Jason. In part one, I reveal that I learned my birth father was not my birth father. I'd held on to that truth of origin for nearly 20 years, only to find out the real truth via the work and research I was doing on Ancestry.com. That led us to asking the Fortners the big question of how do you maintain truth within the adoption story, knowing there are opportunities to do otherwise, even at the risk of protecting children. Please go back to that episode to hear what they had to say. It was a, it was, it was truly fascinating. Today we speak with our friend and colleague Channing Power. After a journey through infertility and relinquishing her dreams of being a birth mom, she became an adoptive mom. For those that have experienced this, you know how excruciating and joyful this journey can be. Listen in to Channing's very vulnerable story, which has a bit of a twist that Jason resonated with strongly. Join us for what became a beautiful discussion. And remember to pause here and make this episode's cocktail the old-fashioned. Our recipe is in the show notes. Let's begin. 
Hi, Channing. Hey, how are <laughs> hey, you? Hey, Channing. How are you doing? We're good. We're good. How are you? I'm really good. Really good. Glad to see you both. You too. You too. Thanks. Thanks for being here with us. Absolutely. Let me just say that Channing is one of those women who you can easily call a friend because she is so giving of spirit and a smile. Now, professionally, she is a powerhouse. She is the chair of Warner Brothers Television Group. And before that, she was a VP at Netflix. And prior to that, president of ABC Entertainment. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love knowing that Channing has had something to do with some of our favorite shows like Bridgerton, American Idol, and so many things Shonda Rhimes. But as a mom myself, I would say, and I think we would both agree, that her most important role is being a mom. Our family is very connected with her in that our families were created through adoption. Jason was adopted, and Channing and her husband have adopted two beautiful children. Our daughters also go to school together, and she and her husband have also supported Adopt Together. And we spoke with Hank and Sue Unfortner, the founders of Adopt Together, on our last episode. So lots of beautiful intersections at play here. How we create family is the focus of this three-part series. And so... Channing, we are so grateful you're here to talk with us about something we don't always get to talk about as openly as we'd like to. The dominant culture of families have children through the traditional means, and the hopeful stories of families created in this way aren't always told. Yes, yes. We don't really, uh, you know, get to put adoption on the platform like this. So this is really great. So we welcome you, Channing. We're so happy you're here. Absolutely. Absolutely. You picked my favorite cocktail for the for the night. So I do. I love an old-fashioned. I also like tequila, but an old-fashioned is quite delicious. I had a Oaxacan <laughs> old-fashioned yesterday on uh, Father's Day. And uh, the oh. Oaxacan old-fashioned is, uh, if you're a tequila fan, give it a one-and-a-half-ounce pour of uh, Añejo of choice, along with a half-ounce pour of uh, Mezcal. And uh, and and put some uh, put some bitters in there, and some sugar. It's a fantastic variation of the uh, of the old fashioned. Highly recommend. I love it. I love it. Now, <laughs> here's a question for you: What is your what is your bourbon of choice right now in your old fashioned? Right now, I'm sipping on a High West okay. American love bourbon. High West. Yes. 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 Um, yes. 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 How about you? What did What are you? Mine is for? something called Heaven's Door, which I got as a uh, gift yes. um, from someone, and it's quite quite lovely. So yeah, Bob Dylan's whiskey. Yes. Yeah, yes. knocking on heaven's door. It's Bob Dylan's whiskey. Yeah, it's quite delicious. So I was like, let's try it with this one. We are are so, so happy that you're here. And um, would you like to share a little bit about your adoption story? Sure. Happy to. Happy to. Cool. Um, you know, first of all, thank you for having me on. And I do think that this is such an important conversation to be having. I wish it was a conversation that we had more often, you know. And one of the things that I have been so impressed by, you know, you mentioned Adopt Together, and I know the Fortners have been on, and we became involved in Adopt Together after having met Hank and Sue Ann. And part of what I love about what they're doing with Adopt Together, it's not only about helping people who financially can't um, make adoption happen for themselves, but it's also bringing adoption into the conversation in a way that I feel it just hasn't been, you know, and even at our school, you know, having World Adoption Day, you know, having the parents who have adopted children come in and talk about their journeys. You know, we shared books um, when they were in second grade, which was amazing. And, 
and it just it starts to sort of normalize the, the, the conversation. And I think for mm-hmm. so long, it's been such a taboo subject. So you had asked about my journey and my husband, Scott and I, you know, we were married, we wanted to start a family, we embarked on that journey, sort of the old fashioned way. And uh. we're not having a lot of success. Um, I know. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> we're not having a lot of success and discovered that I had some medical challenges that were going to make it impossible for me to carry my own child. And so we, you know, fortunately, being in a, in a financial place where we had a lot of possibilities and decisions open to us, you know, did we want to have a surrogate? Did we want to find a donor egg? Did we want to, you know, consider adoption? Adoption for both of us felt like something that made a lot of sense. We knew that there were so many children who, for various reasons, did not have a home of their own. And it felt like if we weren't able to have our own biological child, sort of the old-fashioned way, once again, um, and we were going to, 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 to walk a different path, for us, it seemed to make sense that that felt like a path that we wanted to walk. And we went and we met with an adoption attorney. And after that initial meeting, I was like, yes, let's go, let's do this. And my husband was a little bit more unsure. You know, he, he was nervous about the various challenges that lie, you know, that, that potentially could lie ahead. And, you know, he was very worried about, um, what might happen if we walked the path and got down at a certain, uh, a certain way through the journey. And then, you know, the birth mother changed her mind or the birth mm. father decided that he wanted to keep the child. And some of those things that really was unsettling for him. Yeah. And then we decided to try one more time to get pregnant on our own. We actually did get pregnant and then we lost that baby. And it was, for, I think that was sort of the linchpin for my husband, because I think it really cemented for him that he wanted to be a dad. Oh, and he said, yeah. yeah, I know it was the hardest thing that's ever happened to us. But I, I think that it was such an important part in the formation of our family because, mm-hmm. you know, I'd known forever that I wanted to be a mom. And I think he wanted to be a dad in the way they like, you want to be a dad, but it doesn't feel real until it feels real. Right. And I think he'd really bonded with that, that baby. And then he was mm. like, okay, I'm, I'm a little afraid of this journey, but I'm willing to take it with you. And so that started us on our path. Oh, and- <laughs> That's good. No, thank you for sharing. That's everything. Yeah. That's so, beautiful. And our daughter is adopted. She was born in 2012. And our son is also adopted. He was born in 2017. Okay. Wow. And it's so yeah. interesting when I see pictures of you guys and I go and I look and I go, you know, she looks like her and he looks like him. Like, <laughs> like there's something about the spirit also, you know, that's kind of coming through as well. So yes. And when we, when we went through the process, we had said that we were open to children of any racial or ethnic background. We were just, you know, we even took sort of the classes, you know, how, what, what we do for, we ended up with a Korean baby, for example, you know, so that we would kind of understand how to talk about histories and heritage that might not be our own. Mm-hmm. And mm. as it so happens, both of our children are biracial, black, white, and I'm black, my husband's white. And mm-hmm. so it's just interesting that that's the way it ended up, but that wasn't necessarily the path that we set out to walk, which was right. kind of remarkable. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm processing that because you know I, I anytime I get into an adoption conversation, of course you know I, I I'm hardwired into the adoption conversation. I was adopted by a white family in the Midwest in the '70s, and every part of my adoption was closed in Nebraska right. in from '71 to '77. Well, let me rephrase that: prior to 1977, adoptions were closed, 
And right. so when I conducted my search in the late 90s, early 2000s, my search to find my biological parents, that is, I had to go through the state of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And what that meant to me was basically, you know, in, uh, ensuring to my parents that I'm doing this with love and and my hopes of their blessing. Because for me, being black, raised by white, a white family, there was never a question of like, oh, were you adopted or not? Right. Like right. it was just, it was a no, it was a known quality. But Yvonne, a conversation we often have is uh, my, my father who raised me when Yvonne and I got married, uh, she was like, you know, you could be a son. And I think that's what starts to happen in family, right? Mm-hmm. We pick up each other's uh, mannerisms and uh, some sometimes physicalisms. It's so interesting that you say that because we spent time with um, a considerable amount of time actually with my our daughter's birth mother. Mm-hmm. Um, she chose to have the baby here in California, so we had brought her out from her home state, and she stayed here for the last two months of her pregnancy. Okay, and so we spent time with her and with the other wow. two children that she had. We took them to Disneyland. Oh, wow. you know, we never wow. knew anything about our daughter's birth father. The mother okay. had chosen not to disclose. We never got that information. She was a biracial young woman. Her mother was white. Her father was black. Yeah. So that's how we know that our daughter is biracial to got that it. degree um, mm-hmm. because she didn't she didn't disclose anything about the birth father. You know, that mm. sort of, um, all I can say is he probably was very, very tall because she yeah. was about my height and my daughter is already <laughs> almost there and she's a lot younger. <laughs> 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 yes. So yeah. I know that there will be, you know, inevitably questions about that from my daughter at some point with my son. Um, and I'm just saying my, because my husband's not here. If I were, you know, I'm just, it's obviously our children, but yeah. with, with, um, our son, we spent time with both the biological parents, the mother and father, oh, and got to okay. know them a bit. And actually, our son's birth mother wrote a letter to our son that she gave to me. It's in a sealed envelope. I have not opened it. I promised hmm. her that I wouldn't. <gasps> that she says, talks about her reasons oh, for wow. giving him up for adoption. And wow. there's a whole thing there, right? And wow. she said, when he's old enough and when he asks, you know, I want you to give this to him. I'm getting a little teary about it, um, oh you know, because it's one of the hardest things as an adoptive parent to think about how to explain the fact that, you know, you're adopted. And yeah. we were given this advice as we went through these classes to become adoptive parents about how you want to normalize the conversation about adoption and that it should be no different than wearing glasses or having red hair or freckles it's like you're adopted this is just the you know and we we started that with my daughter from day one we would you know we had books and we would talk about it before she was even verbal we were talking about it and she has um cousins who she's very close with who are older than she is by a couple of years and they knew they came and met her when we first brought her home and you know so it's always been a conversation and i think for our daughter who is four years older than our son she understood it in sort of the abstract. She didn't really understand what adoption meant until like one day she didn't have a brother and the next day she did, you know, right. and mm-hmm. we kind of talked her through that and it became real for her in a way that it isn't yet for him. Cause he's still, he's still young, Yeah. but it's always been such a normal conversation in our house. And I think they, they, they've each internalized the idea of adoption, but because neither one of them yet really understands where babies come from, you know, the more yeah. complicated parts of those conversations <laughs> yeah. are still not, you know, in the in the vernacular. But yeah. we talk uh-huh. about it a lot. Like, what are we going to say 
when the time comes. And I'm trying to get our daughter's birth mother to write a similar letter for her so that Mm. she has, you know, from her, from her mouth, like why she felt this way. I hope that our children don't have, I hope that they don't struggle with the notion of not being wanted because I hope that they have felt in our family, the love and the fulfilling part of being, you know, a part of, of, of our unit. But there, there certainly will come a time where that question will be asked, you know, like, why did this happen? How did this happen? You know, and we talk about that a lot. Like, how do we handle those conversations? And how will we feel if they want to meet their birth parents, which we're certainly open to, right? And how do we handle those conversations? So, you know, in a weird way, adopting both of our children was a long and complicated journey and conversation. And now we're in what I feel is sort of a deliciously uncomplicated moment, you know, because Mm. the adoptions are behind us and, you know, these children are legally a part of our family and they're not yet at the point where the hard questions come and that's Mm going to be the next phase. And so Mm -hmm. it's something that, you know, we talk about quite a bit. You know, Channing, the, uh, uh, you just touched on basically everything that I've been kind of like uh, grappling with for the past 20 years, honestly. Uh, open versus yeah. closed adoption. Uh, my mom, her last words to me in 02, she passed really young back in 02. She knew I'd conducted my search and she knew I w- successfully met my biological mother. She knew that I was going to do this. But she said to me, she said, this was a couple of months before she passed away. She said, you've had my support, Jason. I've always been all about y- you doing the search. But she said, now that you have successfully found your birth mom, she said, and I quote, she said, I'm jealous as hell. Mm. And only regret that I have, I don't believe in regrets, but if I did, one would be that they never had the chance to meet and get eye to eye, right? Like, you know, it's Mm -hmm. heredity or environment. But you also touched on the idea of normalizing adoption, right? And I I think that's so, I I love that's at the core of what Adopt Together is all about. It's at the core of what we're all about with Logger Lane. I've Mm -hmm. written a short film uh, that we uh, are going to be rolling out called Lifeline, and it's about my birth search story. And at its core is so many, so many times in storytelling, the foster care or adopted story is literally used in horror genre, right? Like it's yeah. the, it's Freddie, it's Jason, right? Like it's, you know, it's, you know, the, the, and, and the foster care system needs to be addressed in a deep and profound way. There are some very uh, dangerous environments out there, but there are also some awesomely loving families that are, that, that give a child uh, a new lease on life. And, and that needs to be normalized. That needs to be talked about. That needs to be celebrated. That needs to be honored. That needs to be uh, embraced, whether we are adopted or not, right? We all go through the, the various searches for who we are, where we come from, what, what it's about. Of course, that's exacerbated. If, if, you're not connected to the biological roots, right? Like if you don't, I mean, if you, if my mom had a uh, letter tucked away in a shoebox under the bed, you know, I would, I would write that story out right now. Right. Like, I mean that, you know, if, if open that up when you're 18, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful gift of, of identity of where you're from, but also the environment that you are in informs you as well. And so it is that yes. question of a heredity or environment, you know, it's, it's both from the adopted lens. And, and that's a, that's a big part of the identity. And so I think we're, we're quite kind of built up and ready for uh, uh Channing, if you are for your, your first Lager Lane spirits, cocktail confession, are, <laughs> you, you, are, are you ready? 
I think so. Oh, all right. All right. <laughs> you made your own old fashioned. I think you're, and you took a couple of sips. You said it was good. So I think you're ready. I did an okay job. So Channing, <laughs> what has been your search for identity? Uh, wow. I mean, <laughs> this is, um, it's a, it's a really complicated question. And I, uh, Vaughn, you and I were talking a little bit about the experience of being part of the, you know, DEI group at our school and sort of, yes. and I was telling you how we had, um, each person who's been a part of that committee confesses and talks about things, why this work is important to them. Yes. And part of what I shared when it was my turn was that, you know, I am black. I was raised in basically an all white environment and without going too far into the history of it all, my mom was raised in Brooklyn. My dad was raised in Chicago. Both of them grew up in very thriving, vibrant black communities. They never had any real question about their identities. You know, my mom is very fair skinned, but never felt anything other than black her whole life. And both of them, you know, the culture, the music, the traditions, Mm. you know, they were both Mm. of them very steeped in it for various reasons they each left home, found each other in Nashville, Tennessee, married, and then moved about the country for a bit. We ended up settling um, when I was five in Northern California in Sacramento. And my parents' big focus was on education. We want our kids to go to the best schools. We want to do this. We want to do that. They weren't as focused. And they obviously moved to a place where my dad had found a job, but they weren't really focused on the importance of establishing a black identity. Like we didn't, we, we went to a white church, we went to a white school, you know, we just did all the things that were just sort of in the neighborhood and all the things. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that because that gave me the opportunities that have led to me being who I am and the job that I have and all of the rest of it. But I didn't really know how much I was missing out on not having peers who looked like me, not having, mm. um, the ability to relate to people from my own culture. Um, And it wasn't until I was in college, it wasn't until I went to UCLA and with my white friends rushed a white sorority, do you know the whole thing, right? Because Mm -hmm. this was, these were my touchstones. And, you know, every once in a while you'd bump up against certain things. Like when I was in high school, you know, my hair doesn't do the same things that my white friends do. And you just kind of like rush past it and move on. And, you know, there are like, you know, lots of microaggressions, but you know, I I was raised at the time, you know, this is like the seventies and eighties where it's like, you got to assimilate, you know, it's like that, that line from scandal, you got to be twice as good as everyone else to get half as far. Right. So that's what, that was my focus. And you just sort to go past it and you don't really realize the sort of shell that you're building up around yourself because of all these things. And I don't I don't blame my parents for it and it wasn't as though there wasn't culture in our house, you know, and music and things that but it, it's not the same as being surrounded by it in a real in a real way. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until I was in college that I started delving into what it means to be black and like taking classes and reading books and and creating my own education that I had not been given by my parents. And to be clear, I'm super grateful for everything that my parents gave me, but Mm -hmm. that was not, they were more focused on how to move forward and how to assimilate and how to be successful by playing in this world, right? And those were valuable tools, but it's like you're only playing with half the deck. And it wasn't until Uh I was in my 30s that I felt as comfortable in a room full of black people as I did in a room full of white people. Mm. And 
being comfortable in a room full of white people is very handy, especially in my job, <laughs> where as yeah. I've climbed the ladder, it's yeah. oftentimes I'm not only the only person of color, but the only woman, right? So I'm glad that I have those skills, but it's weird for me to have been in rooms where there's a bunch of black people and feel more out of it because I don't have the right references and I don't have the right context and I don't have the right slang and I don't have that you know what I mean and the idea that I had to come to all of that so much later in my life than I wish that I had right mm. so that's that's sort of my um in terms of identity you know I feel like I have come to my pride in being a black woman and what that means and the fullness of what that means Mm -hmm. so much later in my life than I wish that I had. You know, I wish that I had had, and it wasn't just my parents, it was also the world in which I lived, where you know, mm -hmm. when I was growing up, there was no Beyonce, there was no Rihanna, there was no Kerry Washington, there was no Shonda, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that, that we all came of age together, right? And so I'm grateful that my children are growing up in a different world than the one that I grew up in, where there are lots of different role models that they can look to you know my mm -hmm. daughter watches Simone Biles you know every time there's yeah, a new yeah. <laughs> thing that she does you know and I, and I love there's so many black gymnasts out there right now it's like epic yeah. right you yeah, know yeah. and and so I'm grateful for that but it is a it's a really complicated thing for me from an identity perspective to be to have come to the, the realization of my full self and the notion of how many things I was overlooking disregarding hiding you know as part of my journey, right? And that's something that I I, I, I definitely don't want my children to have to walk that path. I want wow. them to be their fullest selves in all their brightness and color, you know, the whole time. Wow. Wow. Yes. That is, that is, a, that's amazing. You know, I'm, I'm black and Filipino. And so for me, I, when I talk about like, and my dad wasn't always around, so I mean, in terms of being black, it's because people would look at me and say, oh, you're black. And I didn't grow up in an all white neighbor, uh, neighborhood. I did go to a, a school where it was, it was diverse, but maybe like 20%, 30%. They were like maybe four or five kids who identified as black on the street, you know, mm -hmm. but because my dad wasn't around as much. And so we didn't see his side of the family as much. Right. I relate to you in, in that way that my understanding of my blackness by being surrounded by people wasn't really until I got to college and I decided yeah. to become an AKA and I did all of those things. And I remember- I wish we I would have done that. Yes. <laughs> the one thing I really, really miss. Yes. Right. Right. And so I loved doing it and I loved, and and, and even in our little sorority that, that we had at you know, University of Arizona, there was other people who, who maybe did not identify as black, but also, but just identified with blackness. So yes. that was something interesting. And I remember when I went to Macon, Georgia for the first time, um, you know, from Arizona, me, my brother, and my sister, and we all went there and being surrounded by all black people and go and thinking to myself, I've always had this thing in my life because I'm black and I'm Filipino of, am I black enough? And then being an actress and being in the, in the industry going, okay, let me see. I, you know, I had to, it's like I had to educate other people about what it means to be black in America. And that, and that we, we really just have, at that point, I, I felt like we only had one definition right. and it didn't include me. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, meanwhile, there are many definitions. They just don't have a platform, right? right. They just don't have a story that's being told about them. So, right. so I identify with that in terms of like being identified as a black person, also identifying as Filipino, and, and, but, but knowing that I learned a lot of it by seeking out 
those communities, especially moving to Chicago. I was like, where's Black theater in Chicago? And then it yes, all just kind yes. of like started then. And I and I actually felt at home. I mean, I did have a different experience of that when I was there. And maybe it was because it was Chicago. Because um, they just like, <laughs> you Black, come on over here. You Black, come on over here. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. No, I remember the first time somebody called me an Oreo and I had no idea what they were talking about. And then yeah. I was like, oh God, I think maybe they're right. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. and not, not, not for any reason, but like, you know, I, I liked all the same music as my friends, like in the high school, you know, like with Duran Duran and the Go-Go's and all that, you know, <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Michael Jackson, but that's because everybody listened to yeah, Michael yeah, Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, yeah, yeah. You only can work with what you're given. And I yeah. think that's sort of the, that's the real, right. That's something we're all grappling with, right. Which is like what's being taught in schools and what's the conversation and what's the, because, because children can only react to what's, what's being put in front of them. And so I think it's incumbent on us, right. In this generation and as leaders in our schools and leaders in our communities to make sure that we're putting the right things in front of our children so that they have the whole smorgasbord of which to choose, right? As opposed to, this is the only thing you have to choose from. You're like, oh, well, if this is what's on offer, I guess I'm going to go with that. But there's so much more that should be on offer. And that's the thing that, that I think is, that's the work that's happening right now, which is exciting. It's exciting to be here now in the world at this time to be a part of that work. I'm grateful for the opportunity for that, but yeah. Whew, yeah, it's uh, it's it's heady. I strongly uh, connect to what you both are saying. Uh, from my lens, I was raised in all white environments. I'm talking right. Mankato, Minnesota, Galesburg, Illinois, Decatur, Illinois. I'm talking I'm talking uh, sundown towns. Decatur yes. literally is a sundown town, right? You know, and, yes, yes. And uh, and somehow in those environments, and so when I, I oftentimes uh, talk about like you know uh, just the 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 idea of uh, being raised with love and support beyond wildest imaginations. And with that understanding then, and, and backing, then you can go forth into uh, any environment, uh, a, a boardroom or a back alley and, and, and navigate your way around. Right. Like I remember uh, when I was in like fifth or sixth grade, uh, a, a girl I'd liked came up to me, black girl I liked came up to me. She was a couple years older and she, she just said to me, she said, what to do? And I was like, I, I I don't know what that means. I, I did not. I, I didn't have. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't yeah. have it in my in my ear about how mm-hmm. to uh, to translate that. And I just kind of right. sheepishly kind of just walked away. And uh, but then I went home and I was like, let me think about that. You know, where did I hear that? Where, let me study that. What is that? What's that about? And so that, I mean, you know, Du Bois called it the double consciousness. We got these navigate in order to navigate this kind of place that we are in. We have to be able to. Um, move uh with that with that flexibility and and uh dexterity it's an interesting game to play and but for me what kind of navigated me throughout so i was an african-american history major okay again i was raised uh, yvonne my, my my loving wife often calls me the what, what do you say yvonne the, the darkest <laughs> light you never skin. get it right we never get it right <laughs> the blackest light skin the darkest what do you say the darkest you, light you, skin had a first, you you're the <laughs> blackest light skin man that i know <laughs> i've had to, i've had to overcompensate uh, 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 many times I, uh, but, uh, but it's that's meaningful for our experience right male or female black man or black woman experience in america from the second half of the 20th century on, right? Like, well, we can go back further into history, right? For identity's sake, what I have learned is what the dominant culture, how they look at me, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how I can either 
embrace that or reject it. That brings me to our our second question of our blogger lane cocktail (laughs) confession is how do you maintain truth uh, with your adoption story in terms of like your family and adoption? Uh, Because we know that you're not adopted, but you've adopted your kids. How do you maintain truth within your adoption story when there are so many opportunities to create stories that are meant to protect? So you said you're you're, you're about to come upon this time that you know that's coming, which is probably... Honestly, now that I have a 12-year-old, uh, it's like you're like a year and a half away <laughs> from the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I mean, honesty, I think, is the is the key, right? And and we've always tried to be really honest from the beginning. And, you know, I was I was charmed when my daughter at around four or five was telling her adoption story to someone else. Um, and she was basically saying, she says, my mom and dad wanted a baby and they couldn't have a baby. And then they went to a park and they saw a woman there who had two kids and she was going to have a baby. And they said, can we have that baby? And she said, okay. (laughs) And then they went to Disneyland and then I was born. And that was all those things were true. (laughs) Because she'd seen pictures because we had pictures of the birth mom and her two kids at a park and She'd seen pictures of when we took them to Disneyland and, you know, we didn't actually just walk up to a woman in a park and say, (laughs) but, you know, I I love the fact that she had sort of taken what we'd shared with her and also her knowledge of the pictures that she'd seen and sort of created her own narrative around it. Right. And we, you know, we were like, yeah, that's kind of how it happened, you know, because at four, that's really all you need to understand. Yeah. But I think we've always tried to be very honest and answer any direct question with as much truth as we can given the age of our child when they're asking the question, right? Right, right. And I think already I can tell, even though he's still very young, it's going to be my son who's going to be the big questioner. He's going to have a lot of questions. I feel like my daughter may have some, but she's a little bit more like, that's that's the abstract and this is my reality and I feel pretty grounded in my reality, you know? Mm, and so, mm-hmm. whereas I feel like he's a guy that's questioning, he questions everything all the time and he always <laughs> wants to know more and more and why this and why that and how this, you know? So it's going to be interesting because I think they're going to both have different attitudes towards it. And my, my, my suspicion, and I may be wrong about this, but that she's going to be pretty chill about it until the point that he gets old enough and starts asking a lot of questions. And then that's going to spur her to ask a lot of questions. That's kind of what Mm. I think is going to end up happening. Um, His curiosity is going to make her feel like maybe I should be more curious. I'm going to be more curious. You know, Uh, you know, I think that the, the, the main thing is I don't ever want either one of our children to feel any shame around the fact that they are adopted. And I think that's part of what we've been trying to ground them in this truth. And, you know, we celebrate world adoption day every year and, you know, we're part of adopt together. So we do the hands and, you know, draw the smiley face mm-hmm. on and they understand what that all means. And, mm-hmm. um, right now my daughter is excited about it because she feels like being adopted makes her special. And I want that to be the thing that she feels always right. And, yeah. and I know that there will probably be a point where someone in her life will, try to throw it back at her as a negative. And, and my only hope is that we've given her enough grounding in it that she'll be able to, to handle that with grace and not feel as though it is the insult that they intend, right? Because yeah. there are still, even now, so many people that have really complicated... I mean, I, a really good friend of mine who had her child, you know, with a surrogate and a donor egg, and she said to me, 
how can you consider adoption? I mean, you don't know what you're going to get. And I was like, well, you don't know what you're going to get with any, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, I mean, think of all these people, you know, the parents of Columbine kids, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think that they expected that that was going to be the outcome for their family. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't like, here's the thing. Any child is like a seed yep. and you plant that seed in the ground and you give it light and water and air and you hope that it grows into something beautiful and amazing and formidable. And some seeds don't grow the way you expect them to grow, but there's no, there's no guarantee no matter how you, you know what I mean? So it's like as yeah. a parent, like you want to open your heart to a child that needs love. And that's what I feel like we did. We yeah. opened our hearts to children that needed love. And we are so grateful that we were, you know, I mean, and quite honestly, like, you know, I couldn't imagine our family any other way. Like, and I, I mean, I feel like we, we are parents, the kids we were meant to be the parents of, if that makes sense. So I I was at the park with our son and he's really good friends with another, with his preschool friend and his grandmother was there. So I know her daughter, who is her biological child, but then I didn't actually know that that she had an adopted brother. And Mm. she told me this just very simple story of how um, they always raised him, you know, you know, the normalcy of being adopted and that he asked his sister, like, well, where's your other mom? (laughs) Ah, I had two moms. Where's your other mom? And so it it was never, he thought that she was missing out because she only had one and he had two. You know, so I thought that that was, I was very touched when she shared that story. The normalizing of it is uh, is what it's all about. The the hate does exist, right? The hate is out there. And, uh, the hate and, and the ignorance, because I think a lot of people yeah. just don't know. They just yeah. don't know, you know? Yeah. And that's the thing that you have to combat. It's teaching how our kids how to be mentally strong, um, filled with love and support, and uh, and then go take on the world like like chanting like you are have done and are doing and like what we're, we're doing you know it's it's empowering our kids to get after it right yep That's right. I, I have a question um and like i know scott's not here but how is it for him you know being a white dad with these the world will see them as black children like are there conversations that you guys have to have in terms of you know this idea of protecting and this idea of identity are you allowed to speak for him in terms of what he like all of a sudden the light bulb comes on in a different way than maybe it would have before. I mean, it's funny because we, as we've been going through this, I'm like, why isn't he in this podcast? I should have totally had him be in this podcast. But, yeah. you know, it's been interesting over the past 18 months, right? There's been such a, such a different level of conversation about race and ethnicity in America. And that has spurred some very interesting conversations for us. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, um, I don't want to speak for him, but you know, he, you know, it's been interesting because I think he has sort of in ways that I don't think he had necessarily even thought about before has become aware of his own privilege and of doors and things that have been open to him that he wasn't even aware were open as he was walking through them. Right. And so Mm. this conversation has been very illuminating and, I think in the microcosm of sort of the conversations that have been happening within our school and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the, some of the stuff there that again, um, has been hitting him differently than I think it would have, were he not the father of these two children. Right. So it's an interesting journey to be sure. And one that I'm proud to say he's, you know, meeting head on and is very, 
interested in and concerned about. And, you know, we had a whole conversation about how you how you can talk to black women about their hair and what is or is not okay to say as it pertains to our daughter. Do you know what I mean? And he was like, yeah. I was just saying, you know, he's like, I just was saying that I, I like it this way. I'm like, you cannot for the preference. <laughs> like you have to just, you know, like how she's happy is how she's happy, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a complicated, you know, because black women in their hair, it's like, there's so many nuances tied up in all of that, you know, oh, and so much history, oh, yeah. so much history and yeah. so much things. And, 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 and that notion of, Coming to a place, I mean, for every girl, no matter what your race or ethnicity might be, the wrestling with your looks is a is a is a is a struggle that is, I think, mostly uniquely female. I don't think that men, generally speaking, are as self-analytical about their look and their presentation and their body. And part of that's the society that we live in, where, you know, from a very young age, boys are taught, you know, you know, you say about boys that, you know, he's so fast, he's so strong. And it's always like, she's so pretty. She's so cute. Like, I mean, that's just like culturally yeah. how we, yeah. how we do. Right. And, you know, then it's, 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 it's more complicated when your looks don't match the definition of, you know, the standardization of what is beautiful, right? In whatever right. culture you live in, like in Korea, they have a whole different set of standards and the people that don't hit those, they feel, you know, isolated. Right. Um, I do think that it's changing because we now have so many role models. It's, you know, Shonda yeah. posted on Instagram the other day, some, uh, some, one of her followers sent a photo because Shonda's on the cover of Forbes this month and sent a picture and like the newsstand, like, nine magazines in a row all had black men on the cover. And she was like, I don't think this has ever happened before. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's Whoa. a pretty astonishing photo when you look at it together. Yeah. It's like Shonda and Lena and yeah. Issa and Viola. And I can't remember all of them, but they're all currently on magazine stand right now. And, yes. um, yes. you know, I only saw that. that in Ebony or Jet. Like the only time I would see that would be Never. in one magazine on Ebony yeah. or Jet. There's been a seismic <laughs> shift for sure. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. And so... So I think that's all helpful, but it's still, you know, we still have so far to go, yeah. you know what I mean, to get to the place that we want to go. So anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated conversation and it's an ongoing one, but it's one that I'm glad that he and I are engaged in together. The whole reason of this podcast is, is about that search for identity. It's about understanding our history, about where we come from, about where we're going and, and, and to teach ourselves the things that schools never taught us so that we can understand ourselves better. So we can have like those moments that you were talking about, Channing, those moments where you realized you had shelter, you, you, you were, you had a wall around yourself and then all of a sudden that broke away and you're like, oh, now you can be in all of your fullness, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as a black woman and all of these ways that you feel like now you can embrace those. That's what's so beautiful about this whole conversation is that, you know, we're, we're still continuing to grow even after being parents and having jobs and all these children, we're still learning and growing in our identity. And, and, um, that's the joy of it. Like at 89, we'll still be going, Oh, wait a minute. I have one more thing I need to find out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I'm just so grateful for you for having me on. I'm so grateful to have been a part of this conversation. And I'm so glad that you guys are asking these questions and having this dialogue and bringing it into the into the public. So thank you for that. Thank you for this work. Thank you for being so open and sharing with us. And gracious. Uh, and, yeah, we really, we really strongly appreciate it. And so I don't know where you are with your old fashioned. I'm, I'm, I'm about out, but. I'm out. I'm out. I have like one last tiny sip that I could take. This let's is take it. that tiny sip. Let's, let's do it. Let's Cheers. Do it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what we're made of who we come from and why. 
are what little boys and girls hold on to, because it is these truths we hold to be self-evident. Please join us for part three of our three-part series on origins. In part three, we interview Lisa Cole, a mom who first met her adopted daughter in a dream. This podcast is produced by the Lager Lane Group. We would like to thank Lager Lane Spirits co-producers and writers Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Seracy, co-producer Matthew Seracy, podcast coordinator Amanda Dinsmore, sound designer David B. Marling, the Launch Guild, and Toby Gad for his original piano improvisation. also like to thank podcast haven and our guest channing power remember to grab our old-fashioned recipe and show notes by going to lagrelanespirits.com that's l-a-g-r-a-l-a-n-e-s-p-i-r-i-t-s.com and we'll see you next time and if you love the cocktail or the episode make sure you rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you listen